Please be seated. And once again, I just accidentally prayed out loud the entire sermon series. Um, so we can just go home now and have a month off. Sorry, church. The next four weeks, we're going to be looking at the subject of abundance. I hope that's kind of clear from the uh, front cover of the bulletin. And in this series, we're going to see that throughout salvation history, from creation all the way through to the return of Jesus Christ, God's abundant blessings always overflow. There's, there's always more with God. That which he creates, he redeems. And that which he redeems, he then blesses with an abundance of his Holy Spirit. And so the question before us over these four weeks is simply, how then shall we respond? In our Bibles, let's turn to, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I've, I've said that it's easy to find. Uh, it is on page one, but there's about 20 pages of clutter in my Bible and bits of old notice and even a tissue and all sorts of stuff, spare dog collar. If, if uh, you've got a Bible like mine, it's probably about page 20, but we want Genesis chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God. The focus of this whole book is God. It's all about God. We are not the focus. We are important. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. All matter matters, but he remains the focus. And Genesis begins by telling us all about him. And when it says in the beginning, it doesn't mean that this is the beginning of the story. Like, now children, sit down, let's begin. Uh, Rather, it means that he is the beginning. He is preeminent. He is prevenient. He is preexistent. He is the origin of all things. And without him, no thing could have its existence because he began the beginning, is what this means. And that includes everything. He made everything. It says here that he created the heavens and the earth. As we say in the creed, all that is, comma, seen and unseen. He made it all. And before he made it all, beforehand, before the beginning, the earth was without form and void. It lacked order and it lacked content. There was nothing there. The the phrase without form, it's a phrase that is used in the Old Testament several times. Uh, It's used elsewhere for a trackless waste, a desert place, if you like, with no signs of life. In Job, it means emptiness. In Isaiah, it means chaos. And metaphorically, in in 1 Samuel, it means baseless or futile. A sort of messy, empty waste of space, really. In Latin, it's the old church doctrine of creation being ex nihilo. That is, out of nothing. In other words, God began the unbegun in the beginning. And all of this. All of this beginning from the power of his word alone. One word. How how powerful, how, how majestic, how abundant is our God that he could create all of this with nothing more than his breath. That he could speak all that there is, seen and unseen, into creation with just a word. He, of course, is the focus of Genesis chapter 1, the focus of the whole world, the focus of the whole world. It all points to him and all creation emanates from his direct command. 
Now, sometimes in life you'll hear an authoritarian person, a stroppy parent, perhaps, uh, maybe a, a mean boss or a military officer, say, look, I'm in charge around here. And when I say jump, you ask how high. I command you to do this. What I say around here goes. Well, uniquely, what God says is. He doesn't just direct and command and control the things that are already there and seek to bring a bit of order out of the chaos of domestic life. He is everything. He creates things. Just by speaking, they have their existence. He is beyond all things. And if you compare all of this, Compare all that is, seen and unseen, to all that was beforehand, i.e. nothing. The scale of the abundance of his creation is clearly immeasurable, isn't it? If you think about it, creating anything at all, anything, would have been abundant. If God had created a small universe, a little one, that was dull and Joyless and uninteresting and unobserved and unexperienced, that still would have been abundant compared to nothing. If one animal had crossed the trackless waste, it would have left a track. That would have been a big change. If God in creation had just made one tiny grain of sand and placed it floating in the yawning blankness of space, there would have been two things that were not there beforehand the grain, and the space. It would have been abundant. It would have alone testified to something sovereign outside, wouldn't it? Something powerful and beyond measure. But God did not create a small universe that was dull, joyless, uninteresting, unobserved, unexperienced. Look at chapter 1, verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, take note, it was very good. It was gratuitous excessive. It was way better than it needed to be to get our attention. Way over the top. God's abundance is abundant. It's, it's too much. He doesn't just make things as the Mark Gungor band sings. He makes beautiful things. God is, is, is a wonderful, majestic, abundant creator God. And I share all of this with you because, of course, he also made you. He made you in the image of himself. He made you. In all of creation, there is nothing like you. There's nothing that's been made like you at all. Not even the angels are like you. Because look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Image, likeness. Now we've seen when scripture repeats itself in the same sentence that's always significant it's not a waste of ink it's designed to amplify or reinforce a a point and this is the point we are like him we are like God in Hebrew thought in Hebrew poetry which this is uh, the most important thing the best thing always came last now in uh, in western thought typically first things are first number one on the list is, is the top priority But in Hebrew poetry, the best always comes last. First things last. And each thing in the creation order is is superior to the thing before. A plant, and then the fish, and then the animals, and then man. And by the way, did you note that Eve 
was made last. This settles the oldest dispute in playground history. (laughs) Girls are better than boys. Get over it. My kids had this very argument in the car yesterday, and they settled it by reference to Genesis chapter 1, completely unplanned. Preach it, kids. In fact, that the natural reading of this piece of Hebrew poetry so strongly indicates that Eve is the jewel in the crown of creation and as superior to Adam as Adam is to dust, that God has very quickly to correct the misapprehension that somehow girls are better than boys. And he says in verse 27 that this likeness of himself even extends to men as well. He created them both male and female in his likeness. Don't worry, lads. You are as good as the women. You are in the image of God as well. And in the New Testament, uh, Paul starts to run with this idea yet further still, once more subverting our stupid little human hierarchies of who's better than whom. And it says that this identity, this likeness of Christ, this likeness of God, an image of God, extends to slaves and free, to Jews and Greeks, that everyone is like him. As Andy preached last week, every nation and every station bears the image of God, and every human of every kind is equally made in his likeness. Unique, quirky, with our own separate roles and ways of doing things, but fundamentally like him. Now, this matters. This is significant, because if Genesis reveals what God is like, abundant, and it reveals what we are all like, God, it must follow that we are all designed to be abundant as well, even Anglicans. Now, there is something in the way that we are wired, I think, something in our spiritual DNA, something in our likeness, in our image, that is drawn to abundance. We like stuff, and we don't have to go very far to prove this. I went to the uh, swimming pool the other day, to the Racket Club Labor Day party. And in every way, it was a day of complete abundance. The parking lot was full, the pool was packed, the sun was shining, they had live music, they even had spray-on tattoos, which was pretty cool. Uh, Ben got a scorpion. Don't tell him, it looked a bit like a lobster. But people were lining up to get spray-on tattoos all over themselves. I was going to get a cobweb on my face. Until I remembered I had a funeral coming up, and it probably wouldn't help. <laughs> it was fun, even grown-ups. Yeah, I love that. Why not? Give me a skull. You know, it was great. Grown men getting little kind of jewels and gems and flaming hearts and stuff. It was an awesome day of, of just abundance and fun. There was food. There was drink. You can have anything you want. There were um, inflatable giant chicken races in the pool. Pandemonium. You get the picture. What struck me at the pool was that no one had to be told how to have fun. No one had to be invited. There was no arm twisting. There was no sales pitch. There was no cajolery. It was just naturally fun, and people dived in. Uh, At times, uh, not just fun, it was outright daft. It was silly, embarrassing. At one point, the high point or the low point, depending on your perspective, they had um, a belly flop contest off the diving board. And I thought, well, this is, this is going to bomb. No one's going to want to do this. They lined up in huge number 
to stand on a high platform in their underpants, puffing out their guts to faceplant into the water in front of a baying crowd of their peers from Fox Chapel, who, by the way, were armed with camera phones. (laughs) Now I know what you're thinking. They must be from (laughs) O'Hara. Or maybe Hampton. (laughs) Surely not from out here. Now, I I wonder, though, (laughs) at the same time as the belly flop contest, which was a huge hit, People did can openers and dive bombs and all sorts of stuff. I wonder at the same time as the belly flop contest, as the music played and the tattoos were sprayed and the beer flowed, if someone had set up at the side of the swimming pool a series of small desks. And around each of the desks put up some office cubicle partitions. And on each of the desks put a computer with the right software there and maybe a photocopier and a shredder. And they'd invited uh, some accountants in their business suits carrying their briefcases to come in and they'd said over the microphone, you know, if anybody wants to take advantage of this right here and just bring a few receipts and maybe pay slips, they could take advantage of all of this and just get a jump on their tax return for next year. Who's up for it? How popular would that have been? You're looking at me like I'm mental. (laughs) Completely out of place. How hard would the sales pitch have to have been to get one person to go into a cubicle and and, and start photocopying receipts? Completely out of place, completely ridiculous, completely unfun. The Beastie Boys once sang that you have to fight for the right to party. No, you don't. You have to fight for the right to be boring, it seems, doesn't it? Because left to our own devices with no rule book, we would just have fun because we like it. If you go on a dating website, I don't recommend that, of course, unless you want to date, uh, every profile will contain the words, I like fun. You might as well say, I'm a human. Because who's going to write, don't like fun, horrible stuff? We have very different ideas of what fun is. People are drawn to all sorts of things. But we all like it. There are many, many ways to have fun, and we all find something fun. And God, it seems, has fun. God likes fun. When God finished creation, he had some fun. He liked it. Verse 31 says he saw that it was very good. And then chapter 2, verse 2 says he rested, he stopped to enjoy it. He did something daft, something stupid. Should have just pushed on and carried on working. Should have gone into the cubicle and done his tax return, but he paused, he stopped, he looked at all of this stuff and he joined in and he liked it and he had some fun. He rested to, to revel in the abundant joys of his own creation. In every culture, Whatever it looks like culturally, you will find people doing the same thing. Even amongst refugees, even amongst the destitute, dehumanized through civil war, you will still catch the occasional glimpse of our design. Marred by brokenness, marred by sin, you'll still find people, even in camps where folks are dying, having fun. I watched footage recently of, of a camp for the dispossessed from, from Myanmar or Burma, as it was called. And, and there were kids there in this camp while folks were suffering all around. And they got an old tin can and they started playing soccer with it. 
They, they, they found a way to have fun in the midst of the squalor of almost nothing. And that's because we're made in the image of God. It should come as no surprise at all that humans like fun, and even in horror, we find a way to have it because we are made in the image of a God who likes fun and made things to be fun. God made things. God likes things. God made us. We are like God, so we should like things too. Verse 28 says, God blessed them, us, you, me, blessed everybody, and God said, behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast on the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Do you see how many times that word every comes up? This is abundant language to describe the the overflowing, generous preponderance of of, of everything that, that God has made. The whole of creation is a pantry and a playground. It's abundant with blessing. It's pregnant with fun. And it's all made for people to enjoy like he enjoys it. An abundant God makes an abundant creation, which he enjoys abundantly and abundantly gives to an abundant people made abundant like him to enjoy it abundantly too. And down through the years, people have found many, many different ways to enjoy it. And then we get to church. The place where surely above all other places there should be the most abundant fun of all. A place where Our resources should be overflowing more than any other place at all. A place where everything should scream about the abundance of God. Our Eucharistic prayer, the liturgy that we use at Holy Communion, even employs party language to make the point. We do hereby celebrate a memorial feast. It's a language that's designed to encapsulate the essence of what this gathering is. It is a pool party. Fellowship is supposed to be fun. And down through the years, the church has fought for the right to make it dull. Now, I I get that sometimes what we do is we come to church wounded by sin or, or maybe ashamed at some sin that we have committed of our own. and Perhaps we just come here against all odds, with the faintest glimmer of the hope of finding some measure of grace. And I know that on those occasions when that is your week, then you come here looking for something more serious, something penitential, something contrite perhaps. You don't come looking for crazy town. And of course, we all know that we don't all operate in one mood and one mode all the time. But if you come here and you find grace, especially having come here from a place of contrition and shame, then finding the grace of Jesus Christ and knowing that you've been loved into the kingdom of God and that you deserve a place at his table because he has died to present you as a fragrant offering to the Father, knowing that you belong because of him alone and the abundance of his grace alone, that should always lead to an expression of joy. Holy Communion is the peak of our expression 
of fun, of joy, of grace, of abundance. On a really joyless day in church, in a bad church, on a bad day, someone will stand up and they will read from Genesis chapter 1, the chapter that we are in right now, and having read this, this beautiful, abundant poem and doxology about the glory of God's creation, they will then say the worst words in all human language. Today, brothers and sisters, I want to talk about stewardship. And the whole room goes, ah! It's a money talk! Oh, no! And the priest thinks, you know, it just feels safer down there. I might do the rest of the sermon kind of in hiding. <laughs> in the modern Western church, I've just noticed that the, 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 the Genesis sermon, the stewardship sermon, often boils down to a few very simple, very predictable points. God made everything. God put us in charge. So we need to respond carefully and give a very small percentage back to him. And then if you're really unlucky, at this point in the sermon, there'll be a finger-wagging section where you're reminded that your percentage is too small. And then we have some begging. Could we have some more, please? And then finally, a sort of embarrassed piece of backtracking where we say, if you don't feel like giving money, how about your time and talent instead? Because, you know, Duquesne Light will accept that in payment, won't they? And I want to say, really? Church... Really? How could some stewardly, small, carefully passed, percentage-based, neatly calculated, mealy and tax return style response possibly be in line with anything that we have just read about the abundance of God's creation? We're just playing in this sermon series with the image of overflow, that God's abundance overflows, hence the graphic on the cover of the bulletin for these four weeks. But there is an opposite concept to overflow that, that churches often employ to make more money, and many organizations use this. The IRS, the schools, and the doctors, and the libraries, and the museums all use, instead of overflow, the concept of extraction to get more money. They will all line up to extract more money from you by one means or another. And when the church emulates them, she takes her focus off God. And it's all about God. It's not about our money. It's not about our bills. It's not about ourselves. It's about God and the abundance of his creation. Now, we need to pay the bills. You need to know that we have a plan for paying them. You need to know that we're spending money well and saving it where we can. I know that money follows vision, so if we don't share a vision and just shove it in a bag someplace, you'll stop giving as much. And every single budget in this church is always set after a public prayer meeting to pray over the budget and cast the vision together so that the vestry faithfully can implement the thing that you want to do. But ultimately, our giving is not supposed to be a function of need. It's supposed to flow from our identity in God. We are made in his likeness. He is an abundant God, and he has made us to be abundant too. And abundance always overflows. 
Now, as we prepared this sermon graphic and just Google image searched Overflow, we were amazed to find how many church things came up. It seems that overflow is a really churchy word. And, and there, are, there are overflow churches, churches whose whole church name is overflow. There, there are sermon graphics and images and book covers that come up with this clean water and fresh starts and forgiveness and, and new spiritual health and baptism and the anointing of the Holy Spirit all use this image of, of overflow. But just for a laugh, we also looked up the antonym of this word and did an image search for that. Extraction. What do you think came up when we Googled extraction? Yeah? Can you guess? It was components from bathrooms to take away bad smells and pictures of teeth being pulled with pliers. Church, so often a money talk can feel like that, can't it? From the perspective of the congregation, like the pastor has just let off a bad smell, and from the perspective of the pastor, it can feel like pulling teeth. A sort of graceless tug of war ensues as the staff team tries to just grab a few more coins from the congregation, and the congregation figures out how many they can keep a hold of. And so our focus this year is not on money. We're not doing anyone any service by focusing on that. It's not even on us. The focus is on God. God is abundant. He has wired you to be abundant too. In a few moments, the treasurer is going to stand up. He's going to talk about abundance. He's not going to talk about money because his focus is on God. Perhaps this is the year that Uh, God is calling you to be more abundant in your walk with him than you've ever been. Abundant in all ways, in your giving, abundant in your attendance, abundant in your acts of service, in your gifts, abundant in the way you treat your neighbors, abundant in forgiveness, abundant in serving in church, abundant in your time, abundant on your knees in prayer and penitence, abundant in your expectation of God's blessings. Perhaps this is the year that God is calling you to focus on him and become more abundant in every way. If you're starting to feel the fears and you're thinking, yep, I'm going to do this. I still cannot commend the belly flop to you. (laughs) I can invite you, however, to jump in with both feet. So let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you are abundant in your properties. Abundant in creation, abundant in redemption, abundant in blessing of the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to a response, a holistic response of everything that we have and are, would we be a people that function out of our likeness, a desire for fun? Would we revel in the joys of your grace and be an abundant people like you? In the name of God.